Welcome to the Case Collective podcast. Hosted by Barry Nelson Lawyers, Case Collective is a monthly discussion covering significant decisions handed down by courts across Australia. We'll keep you updated on major developments in case law and how they're likely to affect the Australian insurance industry and beyond. Now for our latest episode. Welcome to the fifth edition of the Case Collective podcast. My name is Kingsley Grimshaw and this month I am joined by Mel Karabasic, who is a graduate in the Barry Nilsson Brisbane office. On this episode, we'll be covering a motorbike stunt performer who ignored the warnings of a stunt clown, a drunken employee who urinated on a colleague with consequences for his employer, a failure to early diagnose pancreatic cancer, and finally, yet another COVID-19 business interruption case, but this one with the twist of a conformity clause. An eclectic range of cases today, Mel, so without any further ado, would you like to take it away with the first one? Thanks, Kingsley. The first case we're looking at today concerns the Victorian Supreme Court's decision in Archer and Garcia. The plaintiff in this case was an experienced and skilled freestyle motocross rider who was injured while performing tricks at the Kurumbara Showground in 2015. He brought a claim in negligence and or contract against the defendant, a monster truck driver and the promoter and manager of a monster truck and freestyle motocross show. By way of further background, the plaintiff was engaged to perform motocross jumps and tricks during a show. He successfully completed his first performance set, jumping 75 feet. After the jump, the ramps were repositioned 55 feet apart for the other performers. The events that followed were disputed between the parties, but the court ultimately accepted that before his second jump, the plaintiff and another well-regarded performer, Mr. Shubring, repositioned the ramps, intending them to be 75 feet apart. Moments before the plaintiff started his second, he was intercepted by Mr. Bowen, a stunt clown, who warned the plaintiff that the distance between the ramps was too short for the performance. The plaintiff disregarded the warning as it had been measured by Mr. Shubring and proceeded to attempt the jump. Unfortunately, the distance was less than the expected 75 feet and the plaintiff landed directly on the ground past the down ramp after being thrown off his motorbike. The plaintiff suffered a fractured cervical spine, a crushed larynx and injured ankles. In terms of the issues at trial, the court considered whether the defendant was liable in negligence and or contract and whether the plaintiff voluntarily assumed the risk of injury after disregarding a stunt clown's warning about changes to a ramp. At trial, Justice Inserti made the following findings. First, the defendant, as the occupier, organiser and principal, owed the plaintiff a common law duty to take reasonable care in organising the event, notwithstanding that freestyle motocross riding is inherently dangerous. Second, the defendant discharged his duty by assigning responsibility for moving the ramps to Mr. Shubring and the plaintiff. Third, the defendant did not have a duty to ensure that the plaintiff, an independent contractor, did not make a mistake nor to ensure that the plaintiff was not injured. And finally, the defendant did not otherwise breach his duty of care and did not assume a more onerous duty under contract. So ultimately, the Supreme Court found that even if the defendant had breached his duty, the plaintiff voluntarily assumed the risk by disregarding Mr Bowen's warning. So in terms of implications, this case is a reminder that where an activity is in the hands of specialist independent contractors who are competent, there will not be a duty to supervise by a principal unless the potential for confusion exists between contractors. We saw that in this case, the defendant took measures to provide for performers to communicate with other performers, including the plaintiff, about setup for events. Because of this, the court found the defendant not liable for the plaintiff's mistaken assumptions about the measurements of the ramp, 
because it had appropriately mitigated the risks arising from uncertainty about roles between performers. Thanks, Mel. The first case note I have to discuss today relates to the Court of Appeal decision of Shopman and CCIG Investments, PTY LTD. The circumstances of the case are unusual to say the least. In short, the plaintiff was an employee of the defendant and worked at Daydream Island in the Whit Sundays. When staying on the island, the plaintiff shared staffing accommodation with a fellow employee, Mr Hewitt. On the evening of 7 November 2016, the plaintiff awoke to an intoxicated Mr Hewitt standing over him and urinating on his face. As a consequence of that incident, the plaintiff sustained various personal injuries, including exacerbation of pre-existing conditions, as well as PTSD and an adjustment disorder. The plaintiff brought proceedings against the defendant as the employer of Mr Hewitt in relation to those injuries. At trial, Justice Crowe concluded the defendant was not vicariously liable for the actions of its employee, Mr Hewitt. In reaching that conclusion, Justice Crowe found that there was no connection or nexus between the employment enterprise and the impugned conduct, and therefore there was no justification to impose vicarious liability on the employer. The plaintiff appealed Justice Crowe's decision in relation to vicarious liability, or lack thereof, On appeal, the plaintiff's argument was accepted and the original decision overturned. In overturning the original decision, the Court of Appeal determined the relevant test had been incorrectly applied and there was in fact a requisite connection between Mr Hewitt's employment and his actions. In that regard, it was noted by the Court of Appeal that A, Mr Hewitt and the plaintiff were required to live in the shared accommodation on Daydream Island while employed by the defendant. B, the terms of Mr Hewitt's employment required him to take reasonable care that his acts did not adversely affect the health and safety of other persons, including colleagues. And C, Mr Hewitt was not occupying the room as a stranger, but rather an employee, pursuant to and under the obligations of his employment contract. Putting aside the unusual factual background, the decision is an important one. It demonstrates the potential scope of exposure employers face vicariously through their employees. It is obviously directly relevant to those employers who provide shared accommodation to employees, but at least in principle, it may also have wider implications in terms of the responsibilities borne by employers with respect to the conduct of their employees. Now, I understand a special leave application has been filed in the High Court in relation to this matter, so it's certainly one to keep a close eye on in the next little while. The third case comes out of the ACT Supreme Court and is the decision of Alrafi and Australian Capital Territory. In this decision, the plaintiff made a claim in negligence against the defendant, being the entity responsible for the hospital, for failing to diagnose and treat her pancreatic cancer. By way of background, the plaintiff first presented to Canberra Hospital complaining of chest pain, shortness of breath and nausea in December 2017. After several further presentations, admissions, and a number of investigations, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer 11 months later, in November 2018. She had surgery to remove the tumour on the 11th of November 2018 and received adjuvant chemotherapy. Unfortunately, she subsequently developed recurrent disease and at the time of trial had a terminal diagnosis with a life expectancy of 18 months. The plaintiff claimed that the defendant was negligent in failing to diagnose and treat the condition in either January 2018 or April 2018 following CT scans performed by the defendant. 
the defendant admitted that the failure to obtain a surgical opinion after a CT scan performed on the 22nd of April 2018 and an endoscopic ultrasound on the 26th of April 2018 showed worrying architectural and cytological changes, constituted a breach of duty which led to a delay in diagnosis and treatment of approximately six months. The critical question then became whether the loss and damage as particularised in the plaintiff's statement of claim would have been avoided if that surgical opinion was obtained at the appropriate time. The plaintiff's loss and damage was most significantly particularised as, first, the recurrence of pancreatic cancer, second, the pain and suffering and emotional distress involved with chemotherapy treatment, and third, the need for palliative care, loss of income and loss of normal life expectancy. The plaintiff alleged that but for the negligence of the defendant, she would have likely been treated successfully and lived a normal life. In terms of the expert evidence, the plaintiff's experts, Professor Fox and Professor Morris, gave evidence to the effect that the CT scans performed in January 2018 demonstrated a mass which ought to have been identified as cancer and led to diagnosis and treatment of the plaintiff's pancreatic cancer at that time, or certainly by April 2018. The professors also gave evidence regarding causation which supported a finding that the loss pleaded by the plaintiff was caused by the negligence of the defendant. For the defendant, Professor Catalaris and Professor Richardson gave evidence that the investigations carried out by the hospital up to the 26th of April 2018 were appropriate and consistent with standards expected of a tertiary hospital. The defendant also called Dr Burge, who gave evidence that it was not likely that the plaintiff's treatment, outcome or prognosis would have been any different if her pancreatic cancer had been diagnosed in April 2018 rather than in November 2018. In terms of the issues for the court, the following needed to be considered. First, whether the plaintiff's presentation and the results of radiology and pathology investigations performed by the defendant should have prompted earlier diagnosis and treatment of her pancreatic cancer. Second, whether earlier diagnosis and treatment would have avoided the damage suffered by the plaintiff as particularised in the pleadings. And third, whether the expert witnesses called by the plaintiff to give evidence on these salient issues were appropriately qualified to do so. In their decision, the court reiterated the principle from the well-known High Court decision of Rogers and Whitaker that the relevant standard of reasonable care and skill required of a medical practitioner is to be determined by reference to the skill of a person who specialises in the treatment of the kind being rendered to the plaintiff. The court also confirmed that since the High Court decision in Tabit and Get, the common law does not permit an action for recovery for damage which is characterised as the loss of a chance of a better outcome the plaintiff must prove on the balance of probabilities, first, but for one or more of the alleged negligent acts or omissions, she would have undergone her surgery earlier than November 2018, and second, had she undergone surgery at that earlier time, she probably would have avoided the injuries particularised in the pleadings. In terms of the experts, the court found that neither Professor Morris nor Professor Fox were experienced in the care of patients up to the date of diagnosis of cancer. On that basis, the court was not satisfied that the professors had the relevant expertise to give evidence as to what reasonable doctors in the position of the defendant would have done in light of the results of the plaintiff's CT scans up to the 26th of April 2018. The plaintiff failed to adduce the evidence required to establish breach of duty. The court also rejected the evidence of the professors in regards to causation, preferring the evidence of Dr Burge, whose expertise was directly relevant to the issues of prognosis and life expectancy to be determined by the court. 
There was also criticism of the relevance and accuracy of studies upon which the plaintiff's experts relied in forming their opinions. The court accepted Dr. Burgess' evidence that even if the plaintiff's pancreatic cancer had been diagnosed and treated earlier in 2018, it was not likely that she would have avoided adjuvant chemotherapy. This is because chemotherapy is routinely used after surgery for pancreatic adenocarcinoma, regardless of stage, and it was not likely that her prognosis, life expectancy, or risk of recurrence would have been affected. In terms of implications, this case demonstrates how the issues of breach and causation in medical negligence claims can be highly complex. The role of expert evidence is vitally important. Care should be taken to ensure that both the expert who is providing evidence and the foundations and basis for their opinion are relevant, reliable and robust. Thanks very much, Mel. The final case today is the federal court decision of certain underwriters at Lloyd's of London and Dural 24-7 PTYLTD. In this decision, the federal court found that a conformity clause in a business interruption policy operated to the effect that exclusions referring to quarantinable diseases under the no longer existent Quarantine Act ought to be interpreted as referring to listed diseases under the current Biosecurity Act the effect being that the relevant insurer could exclude claims arising from COVID-19. In terms of background, the respondent in the proceedings operated a Snap Fitness Gym franchise in Dural, New South Wales. The gym held a policy of insurance with the applicant insurers. That policy relevantly provided cover for business interruption losses arising from an outbreak of contagious disease within 20 kilometres of the insured's premises or any closure of the insured's business by order of a government. So on its face, the insuring clause would appear to respond to what we all now know to be COVID-19 lockdowns. However, the policy also included an exclusion which relevantly excluded cover in respect of highly pathogenic avian influenza in humans or other diseases declared to be quarantinable diseases under the Australian Quarantine Act. Note the specific reference to quarantinable diseases under the Quarantine Act, which resulted in uncertainty in circumstances where A, the Quarantine Act no longer exists and was replaced in 2016 by the Biosecurity Act, and B, the Biosecurity Act does not refer to quarantinable diseases and rather refers to listed human diseases, which is a category that captures COVID-19. Critically, the policy also contained what is known as a conformity clause. The conformity clause provided that references to a statute law also includes all its amendments or replacements. The gym made a claim for business interruption cover due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The claim was made in the context of an earlier COVID-19 test case known as Wonkana, which dealt with the legislative history and interaction of the Quarantine Act and the Biosecurity Act. In Wonkana, it was determined that an exclusion clause referencing the superseded Quarantine Act did not, on its own, apply to COVID-19 because COVID-19 is not a quarantinable disease under the Quarantine Act. Rather, it is a listed human disease under the current Biosecurity Act. However, crucially, the policy considered in Wonkana did not contain a conformity clause. The insurers in the present case applied to the federal court for a declaration that the conformity clause of the policy applied so that the words any other diseases declared to be quarantinable diseases under the Australian Quarantine Act ought to be interpreted as other listed human diseases under the Biosecurity Act. Justice Jago agreed with the insurers and made the requested declaration, noting the construction of the policy ought to be interpreted in line with the fundamental principle 
that the issue is not what each of the parties meant to say, but rather what is the objective meaning to be attributed to the words they have used to express what they have agreed. Importantly, Justice Jago found that while they dealt with it in very different ways, the Quarantine and Biosecurity Acts each addressed substantially the same subject matter. That is, the identification of human diseases so as to enable the taking of steps by public officials to control and eradicate those diseases. Her Honour considered that a reasonable reader giving business efficacy to the conformity clause would understand it as operating to ensure the parties did not have to scrutinise all amendments and replacements to statute law to ensure that all such references were up to date as at the inception of the policy. Another purpose would be to ensure the references remain current throughout the life of the policy. The decision by Justice Jago and the distinction to be drawn between it and the early decision in Wonkana provides a very useful illustration of the importance and effectiveness of a well-crafted conformity clause. So that's it for this episode of Case Collective. Thanks for joining me today, Mel. As always, you can read a full summary of the cases discussed in today's episode and get in touch with our team by heading to our website at bnlaw.com.au. And if you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Until next time. Mm-hmm.